You're listening to Divorce Literacy with the Divorce Lending Association, a divorce podcast where we dig deep into issues of divorce that center around the marital home, other real property, and divorce mortgage planning, helping divorcing homeowners and their divorce team make more informed decisions regarding home equity solutions during and after divorce. Hi there, I'm Carla Kite with the Kite team, and today I am interviewing Teresa Locke. She is a family law attorney that works in the Denver metro area. Actually, Teresa, I should ask you, do you work outside of Denver metro or is it mostly just Denver metro? I, I cover all the way down to Douglas. So I sort of think about counties because that's uh-huh. how our cases are set up. So I cover down to Douglas County up to Weldon, Larimer County, and then what's in between. I've done some cases in the mountains, but I it's not very cost effective to for me to do cases in the mountains. So I try to stay along the front range. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, I have been working with Teresa for a couple of years now, and we've worked some client cases together. And I mean, honestly, Teresa, I, I think the world of you, I think you're very, very good at what you do. And, um, so I just wanted to do, I, I was so thankful that you agreed to do this interview with me. Um, because I think there's just a lot of information that people don't know when they're entering into this space. So hopefully this will be helpful um, for them. Um, can you just provide a little bit of, of background about you and your practice? You bet. So I, um, I went back to law school after having been out of college for a few years. So my husband and I got married when we were in college. We were young. We worked for a few years and then we both wanted to go to law school. So we found a school that we could both go to at the same time, went to law school together and graduated in 1995. And then I we immediately came back to Colorado. We went to law school out of state, came back to Colorado, and I started working right away at the law firm of Holland and Hart. It's a large law firm uh, in downtown Denver. And I was in the litigation department. I was there from 1995 until 2016. So 21 years of my career was at that law firm. Yeah, it was, it's a great firm. Uh, I was a partner from about 2004 until I left in 2016. Um, During that time when I was at Holland and Hart, I did a variety of different litigation kinds of things. And when I say litigation, I mean, that's people in the courtroom suing each other over things. So I did a variety of that, but along the way, Holland and Hart was really big on pro bono work. So I did a lot of family law pro bono. There's just a lot of need out there for pro bono work in the family law area. So I did that, became pretty competent, I thought, in the family law area, did a lot of work for our employees, other partners at the firm that were getting divorces, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then I decided at the end of 2016, I wanted to go out on my own. Um, And as I said before, my husband and I went to law school together. He's a lawyer. So we opened our own practice beginning in January of 2017. And I have since that time focused I would say 95% of my practice is family law. Every once in a while, I'll do something that's not family law related because it's a friend of a friend or a favor or something, but generally family law, I found that that's really, that's where my passion was, especially after I got through my early years of learning and sort of having to take assignments from other people. When I thought about what do I want to do as a lawyer? What do I, how do I want to help people as a lawyer? I really was attracted to the family law area. Wow. So that's a little bit about my background. Yeah. And that's pretty huge too, because I know um, it can be pretty taxing, right? 
See what I mean? Family law. It's true. I, you know, sometimes you feel like you're part counselor and part lawyer. Um, And I have no training in counseling whatsoever. So, you know, maybe they, I don't know how that, how that comes across with the clients, but I think having, you know, knowing the law, knowing the process, you can provide a lot of comfort to people just with knowledge. If they just know, it's the fear of the unknown that can really be debilitating for people who are getting ready to go through a divorce. Yeah. Well, I, I also feel that I feel like I am part therapist and part lender, but it's also really important that we are able to keep our clients focused on what it is that we do and where we can actually advise. Yes. Um, And then, you know, stay in our lane and and refer them out to a therapist that can help them with that piece and that emotional piece. Right. Because we we want to make decisions with their head on um, and not making emotional decisions. That's right. Or even the financial piece. I mean, people will ask me like my advice about should they keep their house or not? And it's Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, I can, I can tell you, you know, I can help you figure that out, but I can't tell you what your financial future is going to look like. And you really need to be working with a financial person or someone like you about what can they afford with a mortgage? That's not really in my lane. And a lot of, a lot of clients want that to be in my lane, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. We get that. I actually get a lot of referrals um, from people that want me to answer the questions that you should be answering. (laughs) And I'm like, no, 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 that's a question for an attorney or a mediator, you know, but if if you have a question about lending, then yes, you know, but then it's me. So (laughs) um, I know that each divorce is unique. Um, Everyone involved uh, goes on their own unique journey through the process. If you could change anything or give any like a heads up advice, to someone that's just starting down this path, what what would it what would it be? What would you sure. say? I think I have two things really. One is be careful listening to your friends and family because they love you, they want to help you, they think they're helping you, but their experience is not your experience. And just as you said, every case is unique and Sometimes people get bad advice from their friends and family who are well-meaning and, you know, that it's based on their own personal experience, which is valid, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the next case. So that's number one, be careful again, take it in, but be careful. Um, And then the second thing I think, and I tell all of my clients this from the very beginning is it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. This is a process. It's a process, not only legally, we have multiple steps along the way, multiple things we have to do, forms we fill out, meetings we go to, hearings we have, et cetera. So not only on the legal side is it a process, but on the emotional and mental side, it's a process too. Yeah. And some people are further along in the process when they start. If they're the ones that have decided they want the divorce, then emotionally, mentally, They've already processed a lot of that, right? So that's a different scenario than the person who got hit with it, who maybe they should have been aware it was coming. And if they'd have not been asleep at the wheel, they would have, but they weren't. And so it takes them longer to to get through the emotional piece of this um, and the mental piece of it, et cetera. And so I try to encourage people to be, you know, be easy on yourself. Don't put expectations on yourself that are unreasonable just because somebody else did it this way or because your spouse is, you know, way down the road and they're ready to leave and you're still hanging on or whatever, you know, give yourself some grace. 
let it work itself through the process. And almost universally, if I talk to clients when we're done, or I talk to them a year later, they are in such a different and better place in their life. Um, but they can't see that up front. All they can see is the hurt, the fear, uh, the unknowns. And so I think it's just important to give yourself some grace and let the process work your way through the process. I think that's what I love about you most is I know you're thoughtful about that. So um, I, I know that you're a thoughtful attorney in this space. Um, and I, I think try. Yeah. yeah. I try, but that's also where the other people come into play, whether that's the therapist that they need to go work with, or if they're fear, you know, they're at the beginning of this process and they've never been a person that's handled the finances, then they need to get a financial person to help them walk through that. If their biggest thing is they want to keep the house and they don't know how that's going to work, they need someone like you to, to help them through that process. But each of those things is sort of their own process of, of getting there, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I can only imagine the benefit of someone who is going through a divorce to have a strong divorce team. Um, what do you recommend as far as what to look for when when they're selecting an attorney? Like, um, because I, I know just like I'm not the perfect fit for everybody, you're not the perfect fit for everybody. So what is it that they should be looking for in an attorney? I think first and foremost, they need to have somebody that's smart. There needs to be intelligence involved and some experience involved. Um, A lot of people getting out of law school hang their shingle out to be a family law attorney because there's a lot of need out there. And so there's a, you know, can pretty quickly hit the ground running. Um, But that experience really does help. Um, it, It helps, I think, calm people's nerves because they know you've been through it before. This isn't the first time, so you can help guide them. So I think that's important, but almost equally important, I think, is the relationship aspect of it. And do you feel like your attorney, if this person that you're interviewing to be your attorney is somebody that you can talk to, that you can communicate with, that you can share personal things with, because you are going to be sharing a lot of personal things with that that attorney. And so having the ability to relate to the person. And then I think the last piece of it is communication Um, and feeling like you're getting responses promptly. I mean, it's a service industry. So as attorneys, we really should be returning emails, returning phone calls, you know, being responsive. And if we can't, at least letting the client know so that they don't go long periods of time having messaged us and not getting a response. So some of those things you don't learn until you get into working with the attorney probably. But I think those are some good questions to ask up front. Like, how do you respond to emails? Who's going to be responding? Is it a paralegal? Is it an assistant? Is it an associate attorney, et cetera? I'm not the right attorney for some people, well, there's probably a lot of people I'm not the right attorney for, but one thing that I think distinguishes me from a lot of other practices is I made an intentional choice when I left a large firm to be very um, to to be very hands on mm-hmm. with my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, I at a, at a large firm, there's many layers. There's associates, there's paralegals, etc. And I decided I wanted to be more of a more of a one-man shop. I know that sounds kind of weird, but um, 
it was important to me because of the experiences I'd had in the past. So I don't have a paralegal and I don't have an associate working for me. It's me. Mm -hmm. And I bill at my hourly rate. And so I think there are some people, some potential clients out there that that scares them off because they think that it's going to be a much larger bill because the attorney is going to be, or the senior attorney is going to be doing all of the work. My experience has been that is not true, mm-hmm. that uh, that I can be more efficient. And I'm not saying that in a way that's bragging. It's just a way, it's just, I've, I've done both ways. I've done right. legal practice both ways. And this is what works for me, but it doesn't work for everyone. And I try right. to tell clients, potential clients that up front so that I don't waste their time. If they want a full staff of people, uh, then then I'm probably not the right choice for them. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, I, like you said, there's all types. Um, um, and I agree. It's, it's kind of the same thing in the, in the mortgage business. Right. So I completely understand that. Do you have one memorable case that you've worked on? And if so, um, what impacted you the most out of it? I'm sure you have several memorable. Yeah. That's a hard one. When you've practiced for as long as I have, that's a hard one. I think I can think of a particular pro bono case that I had that really impacted my life because this was a woman who was trying to raise two little kids on her own. And she was from a foreign country and she had had a pretty, pretty hard life getting to where she was at. Um, And what struck me about that case was her willingness to put as much effort into it, more effort into it than I would. Like sometimes you get clients who they want you to do the work and they're not willing to do the hard work mentally or physically. If I give an assignment like, Hey, I need you to get this for me. Mm -hmm. They drag their feet or whatever. This woman was like, anytime I asked for something, she was doing it and she did everything she could to help her kids. And it, and in the end, she she made a huge impression on me because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's not not a lot of people out there, I think, that that fit that. But I also wanted to talk about, because I knew you were going to ask this question. So I thought, uh, again, you know, about it. There's also another category of case that has made an impression on me. And that is, I've had a couple of cases recently where... I've represented wife. It happened to be in these cases. It, I, I don't rep- I don't pick like wives or husbands or whatever. It's whatever. Yeah. But um, they both, their husbands were both jerks throughout the divorce process. I mean, really bad. And their lawyers let them get away with it. And actually, in my opinion, sort of incited some of that. Mm-hmm. And the court process is a very long process these days because our courts are so backed up. So it took a long time to get from start to finish. And it was hard for my clients in both of those cases to sit back, follow my advice, remain calm, still take the higher road, et cetera, um, not knowing how the judge would handle it. And in the end, in both of those cases, the judge saw what was going on and it made a difference in the outcome of their case. And it just sort of taught me that, you know, it really does matter how you do this. Um, yeah. And it doesn't yeah. go unnoticed. It sounds exactly. like. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So those are my experiences. 
So um, just because you're talking about that, we're we're going off script here a little bit because I thought of something. Um, How many, if you were to pull a percentage, how many of your cases do you think settle out of court? A high percentage. Um, Okay. Okay. I don't know if I could say for, let's divide it into kind of two categories. There's the initial divorce. And then I represent people who are coming back later, like post, we call them post decree issues. So maybe they've been divorced for a few years and then something comes up and they need to make a change. And so I think those two are kind of separate categories because those folks have lived, the people who are post decree have lived this before. Mm-hmm. And I think most often are willing to try to come to resolutions. So I think I have a higher percentage of settlement in those cases. When it comes to the actual di- going through the divorce the first time around, mm-hmm. I would still say about 75% or higher settle. Okay. They might not settle till the very end, but mm-hmm. they settle. I think people sometimes just don't, because our court process has become so long because the dockets are so full in courts. Um, people often don't get serious about needing to get a resolution until the hearing is right around the corner and they realize, oh, okay, I'm going to court in a couple of weeks. You know, now if we're going to do it, now's the time to do it. Um, so yeah, so I would say at least 75, if not higher of a percentage settle. Yeah. Do you ever get like, um, do you ever... Do you ever have to kind of talk your client down off of the ledge and say, look, in my experience, if we go to court on this, you're not going to like the outcome. I strongly suggest that you go shake this off and, and and we find a way to resolve this. I do. And most of the time, I think clients listen to that. It's not something they want to hear. Right. Um, but they listen to it every once in a while, you know, somebody will say, no, I don't, I don't care. I need a judge to tell me that. And then yeah. I, as an attorney, I have to evaluate sort of my own reputation as well sure. and how far out, how far out of the norm is what they're asking for. You know, like um, if I have to be able to stand in front of a judge and make a good faith argument for what they're asking for. And if it's something that's so like against the law, you know, like that's not never in a million years going to happen. I have to decide, okay, maybe I'm not the right attorney then. And maybe I have to say to the client, you know, you are welcome to make that case, but not with me. (laughs) Um, so I have had to do that before very rarely. I think clients really, I mean, they're, they're paying you for your advice. So generally, yeah. 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 Well, and with your experience, I can't imagine why they would second guess you either, you know? Um, Part of it is because they, the family law area, and I tell clients this up front too, is that there's not, there's some areas of family law that are very black and white. Sure. We have a child support statute, we follow the statute. But there's a lot of areas that are gray and discretionary with judges. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes folks uh, get in their mind, well, you know, if it's discretionary, and it makes sense to me as the client, it'll make sense to the judge, you know, as well. And he'll go my way. And I have to say, yeah, you know, that's, it, it is discretionary, but there are still bounds of what the the law, you know, what judges, there's out outer limits to what the judge is bound by. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting. So, yeah. um, 
Well, I think, I mean, I, I appreciate so much um, your time and, and sharing yourself and your valuable information um, with me. Is there is there anything else, I guess, that's come up just in this conversation that you would want to talk about or point out to people that are entering this space? I mean, there's a lot and and there's a lot more that I, well, here, let me ask you this. I do have a question. Um, I always tell people that a lot of, uh, not that divorces are finalized in January, but I think a lot of divorces are started after the first of the year. And I think that, I mean, I've, I've been through a divorce myself and I know that when you're contemplating that, you're thinking, okay, when is it a good time? Well, as I learned, it's never a good time, (laughs) but, um, but as you get closer to, you know, the end of the year, I feel like it's kind of a goal to make it through the holidays. Like let's make it through these family get togethers, um, whether it's like for the children or whatever, like let's get through these holidays. And then I feel like it's like, wow, January 1st, it's like, And it's all things, right? It has to do with making that New Year's resolution and starting out the New Year fresh and making it through the holidays. So I think that a lot of, and they're not even filed at that point, right? That's just when the phone calls start. Right. You know, I'm I'm ready to get divorced. I think that happens a lot in January. So would you agree with that? Are you busy? I do agree. I think that that is true. I also think people start thinking about in the middle of the year, oh, I want to be divorced before the end of the year. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, exactly. That's the problem is I get people calling me and then saying, you know, well, it's August. I've read that it's a 90 day process or a 91 day process. I want to be divorced by the end of the year. And you're like, yeah, that works. If you guys agree to every single thing and you agree right up front and we get the paperwork done right up front, but otherwise no. Um, and so then people have to, you know, if you get on that cusp, I guess one thing I would say is if you get on that cusp of you might be able to get divorced by the end of the year, but do you want to because of tax reasons or other yeah. reasons as well? But I think your your anecdotal information is accurate that people, it's a new year, it's a fresh year, we've made it through um, the holidays and at least they want to start talking about it. And then they might want to wait until school is out before they actually file um, because they want to not disrupt, you know, if things are going on with kids. Mm-hmm. So it also sort of depends sometimes on what the issues are. Are they kid issues or are they financial issues that are really driving the divorce? Yeah. 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 I'm sure in today's climate, it's a lot of finances. It is. And I think people are shocked now because in your industry, you know, obviously yeah. your industry has changed because of the interest rates. And when people call and want a consultation about, okay, what does divorce look like? And what would I have to do if I wanted to keep my house? And they start learning about needing to refinance and buy out the other person. And then that butts heads exactly with your industry of, I can't do this now. I mean, what I was going to do six months or maybe a year ago now, you know, I can't refinance and get the same kind of mortgage payment. I can't afford it. And so I I have sometimes people call me and say, well, you know, I'd like to get a divorce, but I really can't afford to do that right now. I'm going to have to hold on for a while. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because we probably will see an uptick when the rates drop. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It is what it is. Yep. Um, um, Where do people find you if they want to contact you? Um, And I'm always happy to share Teresa's information. So you can certainly reach out to me. 
Um, but I'll give, I'll let you give a little plug, some information on how to contact you. Sure. So I, I have a, my husband and I have a website for our law firm. It's not one that despite the fact that I get emails every day from these Google people wanting me to figure out a way to get my website higher on the list or whatever. <laughs> I didn't create the website for sort of gaining clients. I created it so that if someone got a referral to me, they could look at my website and see that I'm a legitimate person yeah. that I do exist. So that website, in case anybody wants it, is um, it's Lock Lawyers. So that's my last name, L-O-C-K-E. And then lawyers, because there's two of us, .com. So www.locklawyers.com. So yeah, that's it. Okay. Awesome. Um, do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with anybody? Um, I, I guess the only thing that I would say kind of in thinking about being a divorce lawyer and working with people going through divorce, I mean, sometimes I think, um, we could get a bad reputation because, you know, you're a divorce lawyer or whatever, but mm -hmm. what I like to try to try to put out there is that it doesn't have to be war of the roses. We can act with dignity. We can't control what the other side does. We can ask the judge to try to control that. We can't control it, but we can control what we do and how yeah. we present ourselves and that we can put my client and myself, both of us can put our head on our pillow at night knowing that we did what was right for the kids or we did what was the right thing to do mm -hmm. versus what the other side might do. And that's hard. That's hard when you're being attacked. Yeah. It's hard for me as a lawyer, it's hard for my client, you know, when they see the other person's getting away with things they think or whatever. And that's why the story that I talked about earlier really resonated with me so much is that if you can persevere, I think that always sort of putting your kids first, acting with dignity will pay off in the end. That's my, my belief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and I, just from all of the cases I have worked on and the divorces that I've been involved in with my friends and family, good grief. Um, I can tell you that is absolutely the case. So um, thank you, Teresa. Thank, thank you. you so much. It was good to uh, see you. Yeah. It's, it's always good to talk with you. And um, again, I just, I really appreciate your time and um, just sharing a little bit of yourself with, with us today. Thank so, you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Divorce Literacy. Discover more strategies and solutions on divorce mortgage planning at divorcelendingassociation.com.